Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash art of man and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Oftentimes, when you start making positive changes for the better in your life, you're going to have people, even people really close to you who claim to care about you, intentionally or or unintentionally try to discourage you from your path. In those moments, you have to develop the ability to shrug off your critics and not let them drag you back down to their level. My guest today has succeeded in that struggle and shares the lessons he learned in his aptly titled book, Not Caring What Other People Think is a Superpower. His name is Ed Lattimore, and besides being a writer, he's a professional boxer, is about to complete his degree in physics, served in the National Guard, is an AmeriCorps volunteer, and is an avid chess player. Today on the show, Ed shares how he wasn't always this ambitious and how he spent most of his 20s dorking around. He then shares the moment when he decided to get serious with his life and the steps he took to start college in his late 20s. We then dig into some of the themes in Ed's book, specifically how to develop discipline even though you're not motivated to, why you have to embrace being mediocre to become great, and the difference between good pain and bad pain. Ed then shares what it's like to lose a boxing match on national television and the lessons he learned on failure from that match. He also shares insights on how to deal with success, specifically how to keep that edge even when things are going well for you. We then end our conversation talking about why not caring about what people think is a superpower and why sometimes the people closest to you don't want to see you change your life for the better. This is a great show packed with actionable insights. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash Lattimore. Ed Lattimore, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me today. All right, you've got a really interesting background. We're going to talk about your book, not caring about what people think about you as a superpower. But let's talk about your background because it's interesting. You're a professional boxer. Uh huh. You do uh, club chess. Yep. Um, you're competitive at that. I mean, like you say, you're, you're a competitive person. Uh, it's not competitive, competitive, but. Yeah, ch- yeah. It's a- <laughs> you do club chess. <laughs> I. I- on the uh, on the campus team, I'm definitely the strongest player here. Or camp or ca- campus club team, because <laughs> I love studying the game and improving. I don't really have hobbies because I don't know how to just. My only hobby is karaoke, and even then, when I'm done with this degree, I'm probably going to go and and take some singing lessons and get better. <laughs> there you go. Well, so yeah, you're working on a degree in physics as well, mm-hmm. and then you also find time to serve in the National Guard. So let's talk about how did you go about developing this resume? I mean, these are different, like. Was like you know diametrically opposed interests, chess, boxing, et cetera. What's going on there? 
So, so the the main thing right now, my my degree, and I just finished up my my military service. So I'm I'm no longer obligated to. Well, I mean, you're always obligated in your heart, but I'm. But in terms of will they send me somewhere, that obligation is is completed. But how this all came about is I spent a lot of my early twenties really just kind of uh, puttering around and. And one day I woke up and I said, this isn't going to happen. And I remember exactly when that moment was. I came back from L.A. where I had been training as a uh, sponsored amateur, but they, they cut me when the program moved forward. And I, I needed a job and work, and I realized that I hadn't developed any skills in my early 20s. So I went to work at T-Mobile. And I remember at T-Mobile, there was, you know, it was a sales-based commission job, but it really sucked. And I was like, this will not work in the path I'm going on. It, it's not sustainable. So at that moment, I went and I was like, okay, I need to go back to school. I enlisted in the military to get money to go to school. And I enlisted in the National Guard so I could go to school, continue to train. Because I had been boxing. I had been doing that. Uh, so I enlisted in the National Guard so I could box and go to school and still serve and get money from the military. And also get some skills. The job I selected when I enlisted was the 94 Alpha MOS cl uh, class, which is Land Combat Electrical and Missile Systems Repairer. It's a mouthful, but the, the TLDR is that you work on the electronic systems of the of military weaponry. I was trained to work on the Bradley fighting vehicle, the Javelin system, the ITAS. Uh, the, there's probably something else in there I, I can't remember. But the, but the point is, you know, I wanted to learn some kind of skill. I wanted to get something under my belt that I could turn into profit in the civilian world. So so I do that. I go and that. AIT, which is the, the second part of your basic training. There's, there's basic training and you go to your advanced individual training where you get trained in your job. Well, the first, the first, uh, six weeks of that, you go through something called BMAT, the basic mechanical and electrical theory. Everyone at Fort Lee, Virginia has to do this, which is where our school was. And it was in that school that I realized, holy heck, man, I really like electronics. Because my original goal was to go back for just pure math. And I chose that because I was looking for a way to go to school and avoid lab work in case I needed to miss miss a uh, class because uh, I had to work. Because I knew I was going to have to work. I didn't have any money. Well, I go and do BMAT. And I'm like, holy heck, I really want to be an electrical engineer. This is really cool to me because you do elect a lot of electrical work. So when I come back, that's the first thing I do is I start going to the classes for electrical engineering. But then one of the classes you have to take, you know, is the physics, the physics component, physics one and physics two. And I remember when, when it hit me, we were doing an experiment for kinematic motion, which is just motion independent of, of other forces. So just, you know, gravity and the initial velocity and some angle. And we had to make a prediction where B would land and my prediction was spot on and it landed exactly where I thought it was going to land. And I said, this is like magic. This is what I want to do. So I decided at that point, I was still going to go physics and electrical engineering, but I found a school that had both a dual degree program and eventually I focused on physics. And that's what I'm going to graduate with this winter is a degree in physics. So that, that's kind of how that, that happened. Yeah. And so what do you plan on doing with that degree in physics? So, you know, it's funny about that. So, so one of the reasons why I switched to just physics is because I would have to spend another year in school 
to get the full degree program. It's a five-year program, and I and I'm I'm on pace to finish my degree. If it was just a four-year program in three and a half years, that's combined with taking a semester off. I really, really hauled ass because I, I felt like I had so much time to make up for. With that said, what am I going to do with my degree? Well, over the, the past year, uh, things are really developed in terms of my writing and my outreach and what I what I've always dreamed of. I mean, I I enjoy science, but I really excel at communication and writing. I or at the very least, I think I have a natural talent that can be honed and get me into the top percent of the world. I'll never be a top 10% scientist. I'm not that intelligent. I don't care that much. Uh about writing, I do believe I can be a top 10% communicator, storyteller, and speaker. So that is pretty much, and teacher for that in that regard too, that I, I learned that this past year as well, that I really enjoy the teaching tutoring aspect and really and seeing people understand concepts and explain them. So as to what I'm going to do with my physics degree, the short answer is nothing directly. The long answer is whatever doors open up to me is a result of that education, and some have already. I would. I got several private tutoring jobs over, over the course of the year when I needed to to make money, and we'll, we'll get into that later. Why I needed to, to make money, but I got those because I'm a physics major, and I have a a gift for explaining ideas to people. It, it isn't uh, a thing that I'm going to go into industry with because I just I don't want to work for someone, and I really don't like the idea of being told what to do or, or where to be. This almost cost me uh, two notable times in my basic training. But once you get to your unit, it's a little more lax. And, but, but yeah, uh, so that's where I'm going to go with my physics degree, pretty much wherever I want to, but not for someone else. How old were you when you finally went back to college and how old are you now? I went back to college. My very first day of college, I would have been 28. Yeah, 28 would have been my first day. And and now I'm 32. I'll be 33 in February. So I'm, I'm going to finish right on time. I would have finished earlier if I hadn't taken off some time. But that's a, I, I tell people that because I remember saying to my girlfriend at the time, you know, who's still my girlfriend, which is great. And I, I remember saying to her and to everyone in general, but her first, I said, look, no matter what, Unless something horrible happens, I'm going to be 33 anyway. The difference is, well, I turn 33 with the ability to earn more money and have a better life for myself. Or will I turn 33 still chasing after little minimum, uh, not minimum wage, but slightly above minimum wage jobs with nothing to, with nothing to show for how intelligent I believe I am and I haven't challenged myself. So I'm really happy that I decided to, because a lot of people don't. And even when they do decide to go back to school, it's certainly not for something as rigorous as physics or engineering. And so now the we're almost done and I can look back and go, wow, I finished it. So No, I, I love that because I, I know a lot of guys who feel like, well, I, I, I wasted my 20s. It's too late for me, you know, but like you're proof like, no, it's not like you can get started anytime. It is never too late. I mean, oh, you're talking to a guy like like when I came back from my basic, I remember I got home from basic and AIT and everything. I got back like uh, like December 20th, maybe 21st. And I went out, I went out drinking and celebrating, woke up and I was just like, you know what? 
alcohol is going to inhibit me making any progress. I got too much important stuff. I got a great relationship. I have the military now, and then you have to deal with the uniform code of military justice as well as the legal system if you get pulled over for DUI. And I have my academics that I really am taking seriously now, and boxing was picking up as well. I was like, you know what? There's no place for it. So I stopped drinking. And that's a hard shift to make for most people when I bring that up. Or when I talk about it, but it was so important to me because I had, I was like, you know what? I wasted all this time. I got all my, all that drinking and partying out of my system that I should have did when I was 18 to 22. It's over. It's out of my system. Now let's, let's fix things. So it's never too late to have the idea that you can fix things and improve your life. So let's talk about your writing, kind of where you're headed, where you're spending more of your time on. Like, what are you trying to do with your writing? I mean, what kind of themes are you you exploring? So initially, well, not really, I mean, initially and still, the whole point of my writing is to organize my thoughts and to see how I have learned what I have taken from my life, which has been a very unique uh, story. We probably won't get into it in the podcast here, but, but uh, you know, there's a whole background of, of where I grew up and how I grew up and the things I took from that, as well as the, the, I guess the early twenties phase and even now. So what I try and do with my writing is I try and break down what I have already experienced you can get something from it the my little motto that i have for my writing i haven't put up official officially on the site is that i take what i've learned the hard way and break it down so you can learn it the easy way that is the number one goal of every single thing i write in a non-fiction aspect is to somehow some way make sure people can learn things without the way you know, without going through the things i had to go through at the very least make them think differently about a, a decision or a course of action. And if that inspires someone who's 16 to go a different path or that inspires someone who's 60 to decide that they can go start and do something to improve the life, then, then I have succeeded in what I set out to do with the words I put, you know, to the screen or the, or the pad. <laughs> well, let's talk about your background. I mean, what, what is it about your background that allow, allowed you to learn things the hard way? Um, well, well I grew up, like dirt poor man like i am straight out the projects i'm a ghetto kid there's no (laughs) i mean i don't have ghetto tendencies and if i didn't tell you that you probably wouldn't guess it but nah man i i grew up in in really rough 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 area rough background very poor a lot of violence around me seeing those things and then learning how to not only navigate that situation but eventually get away from it and excel without moving out i mean people forget uh, certainly my close friends sometimes forget. And when I say close friends, I'm talking about people I met uh, from the age of 14 after where I went to a, a school on the other side of town, not the schools that my neighbor would have fed me into. But even then, I, I realized, you know, my decision to go to that school, that wasn't all my mom's decision. I was, a lot of that was like, okay, I see where everyone's going and I see where that's going. And I don't want to be like that. But here's this opportunity to go to a different place across town with a different crowd of people from a different background. Let me do that. If for any other reason, then I know where they're going. I don't want to go. So having that experience to come up and, and, learn to take care of myself early. I mean, there were some things in my personal life that forced me to learn to do it myself and and manage and go, okay, I'm, I'm in this thing in this world alone. Let me figure it out. And when you have to do that, when you get baptized by fire in that regard, uh, you, <laughs> you, you make some really big mistakes. Uh, but if you, if you survive them, 
you are so much further ahead than the average person who doesn't even know these problems exist, let alone how to settle and deal with them. And, you know, I, I always joke, oh, it's not joking, but but I, I tell it in a joking fashion that I think one of the biggest problems today with the way people interact, particularly millennials, is that they've never been punched in the face for being disrespectful. I don't think anyone should ever get hit over words. Let me make that clear. But where I grew up, you never knew who didn't care about going back to jail or going to jail or who had a reputation to protect. So you just kind of led into every interaction with a minimum level of respect and manners. You know, if things got real, they got real. But, <laughs> you know, you can save yourself a lot of trouble by just uttering the phrase, my bad, when you make a mistake. And people can't even do that anymore today, or at least far fewer than what I grew up in, in the environment and the time. So what do you think allowed you, I mean, what was it about you that was inside of you that you were able to make that decision to improve your situation. There's a lot of people who are, you know, they're in the same situation as you were and they just go with the flow and they just, it's sort of like crabs in a bucket, right? They just let the other crabs pull them back down. What do you think was different with you? Um, I, I know one of the things that I'm really grateful for is that despite despite everything else in my background that fits the trend, one trend that I'm very grateful for that we did not follow is my father was in my life um, until he died. He died when he was 18. He didn't live with me. He lived in Philadelphia, but he made that decision despite the emotional pull. I think my mom wanted him to stay in Pittsburgh. And he was like, for what I, I know how to do, there's no work. Um, and I just want to get away. So he went, and he did that. And then when he was when he was away, you know, I'd go visit him and I'd go see a different life. And it wasn't that different. I mean, it's not my dad didn't have money, obviously. But he he worked for things and he he focused on what was important beyond money. Like he saved up and he took us to the beach. It was easy to drive six hours to the beach from Philadelphia. <laughs> And going there, I got to see, wow, there's a whole different world. I mean, because kids in the ghetto don't go to the beach. I mean, they don't see that. My dad took us. I said to my dad, I was like, man, you know, I really want to learn how to ski. I think it might be cool. So he took, you know, only now as I'm older, am I aware of how much the financial burden was for him, even though he was working, he went and paid for ski lessons. So I was, you know, I'm the only kid in the ghetto. I know, knows how to ski. I used to play a game when I got to high school and I was around a different crowd and they had ski trips. I used to play a game. Let's say it was called spot the black person. Right. And it was just me having fun on the ski lodge. But, but the point is that I got to see different things very early. And it, it, I'm very fortunate that that occurred that I was able to spend some time with my father and at the very least see a different way and know that there was something, there was, there was another possibility than what I'd seen. I think a lot of people like that. They don't get to see that there is another life, that there is another way. It's one thing to read about it on the internet, to see pictures of a place. It's a totally different experience to, to walk with sand underneath your feet and go, I really like this warm weather. How can I make sure my life somehow gets me closer to it? 
you know? I love that. That's great. So let's get into some of the themes in your book. Not caring what people think about you is a superpower. I love, you start off the book talking about discipline. You're doing a lot with your time. So I imagine you've had to learn how to discipline yourself. And it sounded like you you didn't always have that discipline. And there was that moment you realized you needed, you needed it. What did you start doing? What were those first steps, right? Like we talk about physics, right? An object at rest stays at rest. An object at motion goes like that. To get something moving takes a lot of energy and force. Like what was the thing that you did to get yourself going in that disciplined route in life? So the, the first thing I, I have to state is that always, 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 and I, I believe this is trainable. I'm, I'm fortunate, I guess, in that I didn't have a choice but to develop this trait. But, but if you can suffer, like if you can re- endure pain, man, there's a place for you in this world somewhere. Because if you can endure pain, that means that you'll do what it takes if you know what you want to happen. You know, some people, there are a lot of people with grit, but they don't know what to do with it. They're just like, ah, man, I'll, I'll slug out these, these night shifts and these, these 20 hour shifts. And I'm like, well, you can take that grit and you can apply it somewhere else. Um, it depends on what you want. So, so I, I preface, preface it with that. Once I realized, that I needed to change. It was just a matter of looking around and going, okay, you know, what do I need to do to make X, Y, and Z happen? You always need to have some type of future orientation. You need to be able to stop and look in the future and go, okay, I see that I would like to not. Okay. So it was like a big deal for me. I remember this, this clearly right before I went to LA, and you, you always need hard things to kind of wake you up or bad things to kind of wake you up. Right before I went to LA and started training, uh, I got invited out there. It's not like I went and, and struck out and went on my own. I got invited and they paid for me to fly out and everything and then my living expenses out there. But right before that happened, uh, <laughs> the lease on where we lived, we that ended. I didn't have any money because my unemployment had just run out, mind you. I'm on unemployment at this time. And also, my credit rating was sub 500, so no one would even rent to me. Let me tell you what it's like to know that not even if you have the money in the bank, no one's going to put you in a place to live miserable. I was so grateful that LA happened. But what that did for me, though, when I was in LA, I had no bills and I was they were paying me, I think, like three grand a month. Every single dime I got, I put towards paying off any debt, paying off anything and started boosting my credit. I was like, you know what? I'm going to delay. And I seen a lot of guys around me. They didn't understand what I was doing. I was like, no, 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 no. I know what it's like because of that pain of not experiencing uh, the freedom to get a place to live. So I'm going to make sure in the future when this happens, you know, you always got to look and go, I am I going to need to get a place again. Let me make sure this won't happen. So I tell that story to illustrate that to have discipline. To, to develop discipline, self-discipline, you have to be able to suffer. Once you realize that, you got to have a thing you're suffering for. I'm not going to go out because I'm, I'm that then that's a small suffer, small sacrifice. It's not as big as like, okay, like I'm going to join the military and go away from everything I've known and endure basic training so I can get money to go to school and I can have a skill set on my resume in case I want to work. All these things you need to be able to look to the future, 
see where you want to go, see what you have to do to get there. And then in, in that part, what you have to do to get there is always going to be uncomfortable and is always going to require self-discipline and self-control. But I believe that if you have a strong enough why, you'll, you'll figure out the how. And to get your why, you have to be able to project into the future. Yeah, you talk about, you just kind of referenced it to a little bit, that idea of, you write about in the book, good pain and bad pain. What's the difference between the two? Good pain is the pain you endure in pursuit of something that that you believe wholeheartedly will improve your life. Bad pain is the pain you suffer avoiding the things that you know will make you better, right? And, and by, 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 by definition, that means the things you're avoiding that will make you better means you're almost certainly doing something that'll make you worse. You know, you can have the pain of a hangover or you can have the pain of spending three hours in the gym per day. Both are painful, but the difference is spending your time in the gym is going to eventually get you a body that, you know, that should make you more attractive and more appealing to people and make you healthier. Or you can, you know, be on the bed all sore with a hangover, taking years off your life, probably doing something stupid and embarrassing, or probably have done something stupid and embarrassing and root to getting that hangover. So those, that, that little example with drinking and we, we take it to a bigger level. You can be in the, you know, right now I'm just unbelievably miserable <laughs> finishing this final semester of physics because it's, it's, it's so difficult. I love the material, but it's so difficult, but I know that in, in December, I'll be able to proudly say I finished this thing, whether I use it or not is, is kind of irrelevant at this point now, because if I, you know, I can, there, there are jobs. And if I don't, I know how to, I've learned how to make money and, and fend for myself, but I'll have that. I have finished this thing. I have done this and it is hanging here. It's mine. It was painful, but I did it. There were sacrifices, but I did it. There were life changes that I didn't want to make, but I knew I had to make, but I did it. Or I could have spent the past four years living, uh, like a full party and drinking, going out, doing minimum wage work to have just enough money to pay, pay rent in a shitty part of town and not, <laughs> and feed myself horrible food and I'll be in pain at 33. But what did I get for it? I was avoiding doing the hard work that would have made my life better. So those are the two kinds of pain. You get the pain from going after something that you want, something that you desire, something that's going to make your life better, or you get the pain of suffering the consequences of avoiding that work. How do you keep yourself going in pursuit of those long-term goals that you have? Because a lot of these things you're, you're you're going after take a while, take years. You know, becoming a professional boxer, that takes years of training. Getting a degree, that takes a certain amount of time. And it's painful, right? It's not fun oftentimes. So how do you keep yourself going in spite of all that? I love the process. You have to fall in love with the process because if you, if you focus on the outcome, uh, you know, I think, okay, so you, you ever hear that story or what they say, like, you know, the slowest pot to boil is the one you're watching. It's because you're watching it with the expectation that it'll boil. And that's all you can think about. Never for, you know, you forget that it takes time to put the energy into the molecules and the water. And it's got to, to, to reach a certain level of energy and they got to start moving all this stuff. Right. So, so all you're focused on is the outcome of that water boiling. So it seems like it takes forever and you might, and you'll get, you should get bored and walk away. Right. Uh, you take the same approach to anything you want to achieve and accomplish in life. If you only focus on the outcome, if I was only sitting here going, man, I can't wait until I'm selling a million books and I'm a professional boxer and I have this physics degree, I might get 
bored, I might start to hate the work I have to do. And I think a lot of people focus only on the outcome. And so when they then when they really get in there and start going and they hit that middle part where they're too far along to reasonably quit and they can't see the beginning, but they still can't see the end. They're like, what have I got myself into? And then, and then that's when people drop out. They decide that it's not worth it. They lose their motivation. However, if you go into this knowing that or, or thinking that the process, uh, the 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 enjoyment of adding new skills or putting new things in your mind or understanding the universe, that's enjoyable. Or, 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 or seeing how people respond to little articles and how they how they write you or for a little thing that you shared and the impact that you can make and the skill you can increase on how you string words together and express yourself that'll keep you going because then now you're getting enjoyment from the process. And since the process never ends, you know, you'll always be happy. You you won't lose motivation. But the moment you start focusing only on outcomes and you only care about the outcome, you will get bored. You will hate it. Or you'll start to take shortcuts and a shortcut always appears to save you time. But that interest, you know, that, that interest is, is running and you have to pay it back somehow some way at the end. Yeah, it's true. Like I've noticed in my own life, whenever I focus on the outcome, like even when you achieve the outcome you wanted, it's always kind of a letdown when you actually achieve it. Hey, <laughs> it's no fun. Like, like I'm sitting here right now as I talk to you, there's a, there's a book open next to me, a solid state physics book. I was, I was doing a little studying before we, we, we started talking and, and it's just really interesting to me how all of this works. I'm learning about something called the Debye frequency. How you know it, the the science of it is is beyond what I understand right now enough to explain it casually. But the point is that I want to learn how to understand it casually, so I'm not gonna get frustrated when I don't. I just take that as part of the understanding process. It's like you have to not know before you do know, otherwise you would know and you would never not know, right? So. Moving from not knowing to knowing to uh, novice to to expert to inadequate to sufficient to beyond, that is a process, and you have to love that process. Otherwise, you you just quit, man. And I don't want to quit. I don't know. <laughs> right, and you have to love it too because you talk about this in your book. You're gonna you're gonna be mediocre at this stuff for a long time. For a long time. I mean, it's not even, I remember to, to put it in perspective, well, I've been boxing now for, for 10 years, 10 years. And I did not learn how to properly like to where I would feel comfortable going, here's how you should do this. Uh, I did not feel comfortable throwing jabs or and straight rights probably until about year eight, like to, <laughs> to where I could walk into a ring and do this and throw this shot real time. Not like against the bag where it's not hitting back, where there's not stress. That long, you know, I've seen guys, there's, I, I tell the story to people to illustrate what happens when you care about only the outcome. When I was an amateur, there was a guy that came into our gym. I won't say his name, you know, in case he oddly enough listens to this, but I doubt he will. Uh, but he came into my gym and he was doing great. He won like his first seven or eight fights and, and won them big. And then he goes to his eighth fight and he gets stopped. And he decides that boxing, and by stopped, I mean he gets uh, he gets TKO'd in uh, the third round. 
and he decides that boxing is not for him. And I'm like, what? You just lost one time. And it wasn't even like it was your first law, your first fight. I mean, you had eight fights. Why would you think that? But for him, it was about the outcome. He was talking to me the whole time about how he had invited these girls to come see him fight. And he was worried about how the girls meeting each other. And I was like, man, I, I didn't really understand that at the time or get it or care really. Um, but later on, I thought back to that and I was like, wow, that guy was just in it for the accolades and recognition. The minute they took that away from him, uh, the outcome, he was like, okay, well, this sucks. I'm going to leave. I'm going to get out of here. And that's miserable. You have an article about how, what it's like losing a boxing match on national TV, uh, no less. What was that experience like for you in the moment? What was it like, you know, the days afterwards, right? Like when you're able to process it. So, so in the moment, right, you know, it's funny. I, I just, I 10, 10 months, right? It took 10 months for me to finally watch myself get knocked out. It also took months for me to finally say I got knocked out. You know, it, it's a really weird feeling you have with that, but it, but it really humbles your ego and you really learn to, you learn it's not the end of the world. I mean, and you know that intellectually, but now I know it viscerally. Uh, I understand that people lose. I will maybe lose again when I start fighting again at the end of this year. But how I dealt with it in the moment, I just, my first thought, to be totally honest with you, my first thought was, holy heck, we just paid for this trip to Paris. How am I going to pay now? Because they're going to take my contract. <laughs> that was my first thought. Um, oh, we already paid for the trip, but I was like, how am I going to enjoy myself in Paris? They just paid for me. They just, they're going to cut my contract. I know it. Uh, but then, then I was like, and you learn, man, you get tough skin, man. Social media is rough, man. <laughs> People do not care because I had crossed over. Once they seen me on television, I was no longer a human being that they were interacting with. I was, I was like a, you know, and this isn't, obviously this doesn't apply to everyone I interact with on the, the social media scene. Uh, but a lot of people, they, they kind of see you as this thing that is, is not real, like a, like a television show. And they talk to you like you don't have feelings. And when you were in the moment right after the fight, man, that stuff, but I woke up one night and some guy wrote on my wall, man, you got knocked the F out, homie. And I was like, man, like, why would you write that? I just deleted and banned him. But, but now I don't care. And now I look at it and go, wow, you know, that's a learning experience. And, you know, if you've ever been in a fight at that level, I mean, most people aren't making five figures when they lose. They just lose fights and look like jackasses. And so I had to I remind myself of these little things about how far I got. But then I got fired up afterwards a few months later. I was like, all right, I'm going to come back and I'm definitely going to do well. And I could look and see how, what I learned. But for the most part, because, you know, this is a, a strength and a weakness of mine. I'm I'm so detached emotionally from from many things, and this fight included. I didn't feel a certain kind of pain, but I did know that I was in for a thrashing on social media, and I think I I feared that. But but also, and I wrote in the article about the fight that when you when you when you fall down, you know you're you're on your way up and you fall down. Uh, the people you pass, um, me metaphorically, when you pass on the way back down, they're, you know, how you treated them on the way up is how they're going to treat you times 10 on the way down. And I, and it was at that point that I realized that I was a cool guy and I was really, and again, that's always been my stick. I rather learn and connect with people. I'm never interested in boasting or bragging, uh, beyond self promotional things. 
And even then, I don't do that too well. So after the fight, I just kind of was angry. I just wanted to sleep, and I was sad. But the next day, you know, I write about this. The next day, I'm, I, I look at the news. And at this point in time, uh, some guy walked into a mall in Washington and shot up some people. There was a, a cover on the Aleppo, Syria thing. There were the protests in Charlotte because I think somebody in Charlotte, North Carolina, because I, I think uh, there was some kind of police shooting. And I was just like, man, there's like real problems. The worst thing that happened to me, man, I just got I lost the fight and, and got paid at that. Uh, so I'm like, whatever. Uh, well, not whatever, but it really put things in perspective for me the next day. So I, it, it didn't bother me too long. I was just like, all right, I got to get back to real life and deal with things. And But but now, I, you know, it's weird. After all this time, now I have kind of a con- competitive drive and burn. I really can't wait to get back in there after this degree is, is behind me. The process, if I was focused on the outcome, I, that would be it. You know, someone asked me the other day, oh, are you going to retire from boxing? I'm like, why would I do that? I'm only 32. You know, the, 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 the I think five of the top 10, maybe a little more, all of them are over 33. And I'm like, man, I got great. I have a great upside. I've only lost one fight. And more importantly, I lost it in a really boxing is a strange business in business. Losing that fight that way with my record may have financially, definitely financially was one of the best things that could happen to me. But also in terms of uh, marketability, uh, it was it's so easy to get fights now because people think they can beat me, which is great. But there's not a lot of tape. I mean, I think the fight la- the fight didn't last beyond one round, and I believe the official stoppage was sometime around the two minute mark. So there's nothing out there. So we have a chance to do a really great thing. We come back, and, and I will be completely cleared of my schedule. I won't have the degree. I was, you know. Juggling and juggling. I won't have military service. I was juggling. I can really focus and see see how good I can really become. Failure has its challenges. Success also comes with its own challenges. People don't think about that, but it does. Like you, you get complacent. You get lazy. How do you keep your edge even when you've experienced success? Like you're saying, you're on your way up with your box until you got to this match. How did you keep your edge during that time? And how have you kept your edge when you've experienced the other successes in the other parts of your life? Oh man, but uh, because I I know, <laughs> I know from hardcore experience intellectually all that like i understand that that there's one there's always someone better i mean everything is a competition and you cannot forget that the moment you forget it's a competition you will lose the competition and you'll wonder what happened and like, well you were competing you stopped competing but part of what keeps a person competitive is you have to remember uh it, it never ends it it ne- it's never going to end it's always going to be stressful you will always be tested there's always going to be something to draw out a better part of you and as long as you remember that you're never going to feel satisfied with what you accomplish i mean i i think the most elation i've ever felt uh Right. So, so to, to put it in perspective, you, you guys contacted me, uh, to, to, to join this wonderful podcast. And I was like, man, that's great. They recognize my writing. And my first thought, like I, after like, you know, I think, I think I went and had a, an ice cream cone. <laughs> and, and my first thought while I was eating the ice cream cone, I was like, man, uh, but I've really got to finish this other project and, and I've really got to finish the, this degree thing and this Twitter project i'm gonna come out with this is great so so my i never get caught up and there's a twitter project i'm working on but 
But I never get caught up in what I've accomplished because I know that it's all transient. It's all going to stop. And, and you don't, uh, one, you can't keep paying yourself on past things. I mean, unless you had something really great. But even then, I mean, the attrition of life is very real uh, or, or the inflation of life, I should say, that that if you're doing the same thing in a year that you're doing today, I mean, you've wasted a lot of time and you apply that over an even larger time scale. If I was behaving the same way now that I was behaving at 22, oh, goodness, I would be embarrassed. You wouldn't be talking to me. I, you would, I would just be chilling around probably somewhere in a bar at happy hour being a fool. But that's how you stay focused and that's how you keep going is that you remember that it never is going to end and what you've done loses value almost immediately and you have to just keep chasing new ways to be cool and new ways to be interesting and new ways to prove to yourself that that it, that it wasn't luck. I mean, I think that's what really drives me is that I'm, I'm really concerned that anything I've done is luck. So I have to repeat it. I have to come. That's how I, I battle my own imposter syndrome is I have to, I have to prove to myself that I did not just stumble upon whatever I've stumbled upon. It wasn't just a good idea at a good time that I can do it over and over and over again and live by the, the merit of my own mind and accomplishments. Yeah, what you were saying reminded me of a, f- a phrase I've heard, you know, success isn't owned, it's borrowed, and the rent is due every day. Every single day. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm so busy, I haven't had a chance to write anything new for my blog, and I can just see every day the traffic is on a downward slope. It has a negative slope, you know? So... Well, while it has sustained itself, it's big enough now, just big enough, not huge, but just big enough to where like people can find it through search engines looking up, up, up very important terms, at least important to me. I know that I need to get out there and do something new. Uh, I need to get out there and put out some new work. And that's going to be, you know, that I'll just stay up one night all night after I, I put mechanics or electromagnetism in my mind. Well, so you also have a section in your book dedicated to self-control. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, your first part of your book was a lot about self-discipline. And you had a section on self-control. Do you see the two as different? And if so, how? Very much so. Very different. Self-discipline is about what you do. Self-control is about what you don't do, right? So you self-discipline yourself. You, you go to the gym every day. This is a very good example, actually, now that I'm thinking about it in my head before I say it, right? Self-discipline is going to the gym every day, no matter how you feel and doing some kind of work or sticking to the routine that you've created. That is self-discipline. That gets you to move. That makes you do a thing when you were not doing a thing before. Self-control is not eating ice cream every day. Self-control is not ordering a, you know, a, a shot after you've already had too many. Self-control is about keeping you from, from succumbing to your worst tendencies, the tendencies of a human being that if left to their own devices will destroy and consume that person and prevent them from even being in a position to exercise their self-discipline. You know, self-control is is not having another drink and getting behind the wheel of a car because that'll ruin your life if you get pulled over. And it doesn't matter how much self-discipline you have. Or at the very least, the, the benefits you can derive from that self-discipline now are significantly limited because your opportunities are going to be limited. And that's just assuming you don't go to jail, 
right? So, so self-discipline is about what making yourself do new things. Self-control is keeping yourself from doing things that probably will undo you. I mean, that is, that is the big difference to me. And I think, I think it is, is significant. It's important to separate the two. You know, we talk about training people. I used to give training advice. I don't do it anymore, really, uh, unless a person really asks. But, but I think one of the most important things, one of the most important sayings they have in, in the fitness world is that you can't out-train a bad diet right there. <laughs> you can go and do all, you can run miles, man. But, but if you are going out and drinking every night and cause you can't control yourself to, to, to be busy on a thing that will make you better or to avoid your, you know, cause we all want to have fun and we're people. We, we, we avoid pain and seek pleasure. <laughs> but if you can't control yourself to do that, then you're going to only seek pleasure and the pain, like we were talking about earlier, the pain is how you do things, the chasing the pain of achievement. So you, you, a lot of your audience is, is male. I'm curious in your experience with working with your audience, interacting with them, where have you seen a lot of men fail when it comes to self-control? A lot of guys, the, the, the biggest, most cons- or the most consistent downfall Guys really um, needed want female attention, and they will settle on whatever attention they get, as opposed to having a standard for themselves. You know, because the self discipline part is getting yourself to the gym, making sure you learn a skill so you can make some money. You know, dressing well, ironing your clothes before you go out. Like those are just things you do, right? The self control part, goodness gracious! I mean, the the they don't think about the 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 quality of the woman what she brings to the table to make the, to make the interaction worthwhile to be part of i mean sex is abundant half of the population is one is female so that gives you a little leeway to to be selective and to decide what is most important for you and to not just and to not just fawn over and fall in love with the first woman who gives you a little more attention and a little more love and feeling than the other one, you know. And and, and I wish I talk about this all the time, not all the time, but enough. I, I say that I say that you know a, a big problem is you can't trust a guy who who is not capable of dealing with women well because he will sell you out. The moment he's got a chance to, if the woman will give him something he wants, and sales understand this. I mean, look at every ad for cigarettes, and or well, not so much anymore. But look at every ad for alcohol. They understand you, you can't even. You're not even legally allowed to drink. But how do they circumvent that and hijack your brain? They put they put beautiful women on board, right? Because <laughs> they, they know that if there's a woman involved, you'll do something. I'll never forget when when this when when this game really hit me. I was walking to the mall. And there were a group of women. They were selling this soap, this black soap. This is important. The soap is black, mind you. This black soap. And they were like, come here and check out this demonstration of how this soap cleans your hands. And they washed my hands and the soap would rinse off. And they were like, look at all that dirt in the tub. And the soap was $75. And I'm sitting here thinking like, this some $75 soap. And all it did was disintegrate and come off into the bin. I mean, you, you can't see that. But but why is it selling? Why are they able to make a living that way? Because man, these are these were 
beautiful uh, Sephardic Jewish woman, and they they were just that I mean they looked like Princess Jasmine, and it was incredible that there were three of them. So any guy that came up, I mean, if he was any kind of slob or whatever, he would spend money. And and logically, you said think about it, it doesn't make sense, but that's that's how we fall into it. No self control. That's that human tendency. A, a pretty girl touched your hand, and now you're like, wow, that never happens to me. Let me spend money on this seventy five dollars soap that just washes down the drain. <laughs> All right, so so like the sex part, looking for the the short term physical satisfaction with women. That's for, to the hinderment of their long term happiness and and fulfillment. Absolutely, and and somebody's getting paid off of it because they they know they know that most of us don't have self control. That they see women, they go, "Oh man, these girls are gonna like me. I better spend this money now." Let's talk about. So let's go with your kind of. This is a nice segue to our our next part of the of your book about relationships. And let's talk about the title of your book. Not caring about what people think about you is a superpower. There's a section in your book about this. Why is not caring about what people think about you a superpower? Because you have to remember something. Very few of us are fortunate enough to be born into a a very supportive environment. And I don't think that lack of support comes from People who actively want to keep us down. I'm, I'm not, I, I don't think it is an active, intentional crab in a bucket mindset. What I do think is I think change terrifies people because if you change and you get what you want, what is the excuse that the other person has for not doing that? You've eliminated, especially if you have a similar uh, handicap or impediment. So, if you want to get what you want, you know, you're going to have to act opposite of the people around you, opposite of the wishes of your parents, opposite of what you've known your entire life. And that societal pressure is way more powerful than people give it credit for. Give it credit. Give credit to. You're going to have to at some point go, wow. It is not going to, like, you just got to look at it and go, does it matter? Do I care what you think? Do I care what collectively a bunch of people think? Because it's not just one person. One person by himself isn't a mob. It's a bunch of people who go crazy that turns into a mob. Likewise, one person who disagrees with you, that's, you know, you everyone can deal with that. We call those people friends a lot of times. When a whole group is adamantly opposed to the way you see the world, the way you think, a goal you have, or they tell you it's impossible, you have to not you 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 have to not care what they think because the moment you care, then then your emotions get involved and your emotions are powerful. They're gonna make you go, oh man, this is this is really like like this is really painful. You probably shouldn't do this, you know? You can't <laughs> you can't care. I mean I think one of the things that, that I think I that I'm most grateful for in the weirdest way is I don't have a great relationship with my mother. So I never am swayed by my mom trying to emotionally get me to think a certain way because I, I don't care. I don't think that's a, a, the best way to that mindset, but I recognize that mindset prevents me from ever making a decision based on what my family wants. You know, I, I, I grew up and, and our, our parents come from a generation where this country was was way more segregated than than it is to I don't even think it is today. I mean there were literal laws on the books. 
when my when my mother was a child. So she couldn't understand why I would ever have white friends or a white girlfriend. Fortunately for me, I didn't care what she thought. And those people are the best friends of my life. But if I had cared, maybe I would have altered some decisions and some of the good friendships that I made. So so when I say you don't care what people think, you have to not care what people think when you start to change and when you start to go beyond. Now, now granted, I mean, for, for all the any any pedantic people listening, I'm not talking about if someone says, man, you're probably drinking too much or man, you should probably stop smoking crack. Like you, you should care about that stuff because <laughs> we're talking about your well-being. But, but when we talk about actions where there's no harm, you're not breaking the law, and it's really just a different way to think and see the world, you cannot care because you to make any action, you have to change how you think to begin with. That's where it starts. But it, so it sounds like you don't care what all people don't think about. There's like, like it's certain people, right? They're, they're, you probably reach a moment where you find a new group of community, new friends, where they're on the, they have the same standards you. They're going in the same direction you. And like, yeah, you care about what they think about you because they're, they're holding you accountable. Absolutely. And that's one of the, you know, someone said to me a very, very long time ago, I don't, I don't talk to the person anymore, but this always stuck in my mind. She said, and this is this was for a romantic relationship, but I think it applies to all kinds of relationships. She said that for two people to work, they have to be going in the same direction at about the same time, at about the same speed. And if and if any of those factors are not similar, someone has to be willing to slow down, change direction, or or wait, right? And that really stuck with me because when you when you do change and when you decide you want to be something different, you have to remember that a lot of people are going to remember and will feel comfortable with the old you and the new you is going to piss them off. And it's not going to piss them off because they don't want you to succeed. They just don't know how to deal with the change. You're, you're literally a new human being with new values and a, and, and a new standard that you hold yourself to. Well, think about it. If you've been hanging around with people and you had one standard for your life, and now you have a higher one, you're going to ruffle feathers. At the very least, there are going to be some people who feel like you feel like that you're better than them, that you don't deserve to do this. They'll they'll take subtle jabs or, or maybe overt jabs at you, but you still have to persevere. And the only way to persevere is to reach a point where you go, okay, you know, I don't, I don't care what you think. You know, sometimes you say it directly, sometimes it's implied by not responding, but either way, the idea remains, your opinion holds no sway. And furthermore, your opinion is, is, uh, is going to block what I'm trying to do. So we, we can't vibe <laughs> at that level anymore. And, and it's not like you lose love for these people or anything like that. It's just that you understand that emotionally, they're not ready to deal with a a change. Now, once again, you know, if you're doing something stupid, <laughs> listen to your friends. But if you're just changing how you think and going after something different, you gotta you gotta do it. You you have to change. You have to to make make adjustments in your own life and get around people who do think and have that standard because they'll push you up. Pop peer pressure can can elevate you or it can hold you down. It's just whatever kind of press you want. Well, Ed, this has been a great conversation. There's a lot more we could talk about, but where can people go to learn more about your work? My website, www.edlattimore.com. All my writing is there and, li- and links to other things that, that are related to and affiliated with me. My Twitter account, which is where I'm highly active. I, I love Twitter. I think it 
it rewards it rewards uh verbal acumen. And so my Twitter account is the same, Ed Lattimore at Ed Lattimore doc, you know, not dot com, just at Ed Lattimore. Or my my Facebook page, my Facebook fan page at Lattimore Boxer. But but I'm mostly active on my website and my Twitter. So that's the best place you can find me. Ed Lattimore.com and at Ed Lattimore. Awesome. Well, Ed Lattimore, thank you much for your time. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thank you very much. My guest today was Ed Lattimore. He's the author of the book, Not Caring What Other People Think is a Superpower. You can find that on Amazon.com. Also, check out his website, edlattimore.com, where you can find more of his writing. Also, connect with him on Twitter at edlattimore. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash lattimore, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the podcast, I've got something out of it. I appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps out a lot. Also, share the podcast with four or five of your friends. That helps out a lot as well. Thank you so much for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.